Morning, guys. How's everyone doing? Good. Good to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Daniel. I have the privilege of preaching this morning. And before we get into our passage, there is a book that Will uh, strongly recommended. He said, quit everything you're reading right now and read this book. And here it is right here. And I was wondering if uh, you forgot about it last week. You felt like, hey, I want to read that book, uh, but you just didn't order it or forgot to order it. Anyone in here who who would like to read this? Jamie, it's yours. You're welcome. Also, uh, Fathers, I think this was a book that Nathan talked about last week. Uh, Another book by the same author, um, Donald Whitney, called Family Worship. Fathers, if you have anything, who doesn't have something that they're going over right now with their family as they're doing devotions? Jason, here you go. Sweet. That's also a great book that I recommend, Family Worship. Really simple on uh, just practical ways that, that husbands, fathers can do family devotions in leading their family as the head of the household. Uh, but let's get into 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, uh, l- let me invite you to take hold of that and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Since September, we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel, taking small passages, small sections of the scripture, and looking at the historical, historic, historical cultural context, uh, seeking to answer three questions that uh, you should have received the handout uh, this morning, or the questions will be up on our screen. And those questions, what we're looking at is, is we're trying to draw meaning out of, of the text. And we've come to a point in the scripture where God's people have rejected him as their king. They have asked for a human king, and we're in the tail end of a story that, about a guy named Saul, his kind of uh, journey into kingship, becoming king. Uh, last week, Will preached the sermon on ch- 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, and we looked at Paul being publicly proclaimed as king. Remember that story? Uh, Saul's name is drawn out by lots. They say, uh, where is our king? Some people find him hiding in the baggage. They have to take him out of the baggage. Uh, And they say, long live the king. They install him as king. And the section last week ended with Saul going to his home at Gibeah. uh, And verse 27, but some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought no present, but he held his peace. That's kind of where the story ends. And now you'll see in chapter 11, verse 1, there's a clear transition to a new story. Something new is happening. Because all of a sudden there's a conflict, there's an enemy uh, there's this guy named Nahash, and uh, so let me invite you to read along with me. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. So again, clear transition out of the story from Saul, but, but this, I think, is kind of the final step of what is seemingly a, a stage like a, a series of stages where Saul has become king. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, God's people reject him as king. 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul is chosen as king. Samuel receives the word of the Lord that Saul is to be this next king. The next chapter, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, Saul is anointed as king by Samuel. In verses 17 through 27, he's publicly proclaimed as king. 
And this story here in verse 11 kind of serves as that affirmation, that confirmation that Saul is the king. And we'll see then at the end of chapter 11, the story ends with uh, a celebration, uh, a given reason to give thanks. It's almost kind of like a religious coronation where Saul is made king at the end of chapter 11. So everyone kind of tracking with me on, on where we're going and, and where we've been? Okay. So the Ammonites were uh, enemies of the people of Israel to the east. And they had come and besieged. They had surrounded the city of Jabesh Gilead. Nahash is the leader. And he essentially says, make a treaty. The, the people come out in a way of trying to uh, eliminate their total destruction. They have been besieged. And they say, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. And, and the literal phrasing in the Hebrew is, cut a treaty with us, which we will see in the next verse is pretty ironic. Uh, that, that's the wording and the phrasing that they use. Uh, but interestingly enough, there is something significant right out of the gate in the name Nahash. Now, for us, we hear Nahash, and I don't know if you think hash browns or, you know, maybe it's not a very common name. I don't know anyone named Nahash. But in, for the Hebrews, hearing the story read in Hebrew, Nahash uh, has the same spelling and pronunciation as the same Hebrew word for snake. So it's a proper name, Nahash but it has the same pronunciation and spelling as the Hebrew word for snake or serpent. So the Hebrews, hearing the story read, I think would have thought back to Genesis 3, where they have the same word is used, Nahash, for serpent, the snake, that's described as being more crafty than any uh, of the beasts of the field. They might have uh, had that correlation or connection to this is an adversary, this is an enemy. And it's interesting too that this, this guy Nahash wants to bring shame to all of Israel, which as uh, Adam and Eve, God's first creation, the first humanity, they sin, they rebel, they are deceived by the Nahash, the serpent, the snake. Uh, we see the creation is broken, there's shame, and they cover their nakedness and they hide from God. Uh, I just think that that's an interesting, uh, important part of the story as we, as we hear Nahash. That, you know, as English hearers, we might not pick up on that, but I think it's significant. So Nahash the Ammonite went up, besieged Jadiro, says, cut a treaty with us, make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. And normally this treaty might look like maybe they have uh, certain agreed upon taxes that they are to send in, certain designated funds that they would send in at certain periods of the time uh, to kind of pay their dues. This is maybe what they're thinking of with the treaty, but this is what Nahash says. On this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Okay, Nahash doesn't want taxes, doesn't want tribute, he wants the right eyeballs. Okay, and, okay, and I know, I said that weird, sorry. <laughs> Not only would uh, losing your right eye, having your right eye cut out or gouged out, uh, the, in Hebrew it's very graphic, it's, it's like pulling out with a thumb. Uh, not only having your gouge out would be horribly painful, uh, it would be physical mutilation. It, it, it would serve to kind of uh, limit and restrict the people from rebelling because it would have huge implications and limitations on their ability to fight and military combat. Uh, in, in those times, uh, soldiers would hold a spear or a sword with the right hand and they would hold their shield with the left hand, which, which was a larger metal device used for protection that would often cover the left part of the eye anyways. So you can imagine if you, only had, if you didn't have a right eye and part of your left eye was covered, fighting would be almost impossible. 
is what the ancient historian Josephus said, it would be impossible to fight if you didn't have a right eye. You factor in the fact that if you only have one eye, depth perception is very hard. I don't know if you guys ever wore an eye patch or covered one eye and then someone throws something at you, it's hard to catch it, right? That would be very hard. Having a bow and arrow would be also very challenging if you didn't have a right eye. So there's some strategy behind this. But Nahash says ultimately that it will bring disgrace on all Israel. That's what he, that's what he is after. So essentially the, the treaty is, I'm going to totally destroy your town, level it. You've besieged, you're captured. Uh, you're destroyed or you give me your right eye. Now, the men of Jabesh don't seem to like this very much, as you can imagine. And, and they come and they say to Nahash, Give us seven days that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there was no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Now, I don't know, the, this, the, this narrator here doesn't clarify that Nahash agreed to this, but by implication he does, because there's seven days notice, the town isn't destroyed immediately. Uh, the right eyes aren't gouged out immediately. But I just couldn't help but think, and a lot of the commentaries and study Bibles that I read this week were wondering, why does Nahash agree to this? Seven days? I mean, was he very stupid? Because there's, there's nothing that he has to gain here. He has everything to lose. It's kind of a, seems like a risky, stupid move. Or maybe he was that prideful that he thought, all right, I've got my Ammonite army, the Israelites can have, the men of Jabesh can have seven days. It doesn't matter how long. I mean, three, four, five, I'll give them a week. Uh, they're not going to be able to get someone who can defeat my army. And maybe that's, what, maybe that's what his intent was. He was that prideful. It doesn't seem like a smart move, though. And, and we'll see, it, it ends up being costly. But the, the word that's used here in, in verse 3, if there is no one to save us, is the same phrasing and wording that, that the people of Israel use as recorded in the book of Judges. So this should correlate back to judges. They're asking and they're calling for a savior, a deliverer, someone that they need to rescue them from these oppressors, the Ammonites. And when the messengers came, so the messengers get sent out, they go out and they come to Gibeah, which was the hometown of Saul. They reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. So from Gibeah to Jabesh, it would been about 40 miles, maybe a two-day journey. Uh, there, there was a cool connection between these two towns, something that we'll talk about later. But the people are grieved upon hearing the news that unless there is someone to fight against Nahash and save them, they're either going to be totally destroyed or they're all going to lose their right eyes. Saul is moved by the God to do something about this in verse 6. It says, The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now, this should remind us of something that we saw earlier in 1 Samuel, uh, just a chapter earlier, about Saul being the Spirit rushing upon him, and then he prophesies. Remember, that was part of uh, Saul's, or excuse me, Samuel's promise to him that you are the king, and then all these things are going to take place. And one of them was that he was going to prophesy, and the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he prophesies. And the people say, isn't this Saul? Why is he, what is he doing among the prophets, prophesying? And this is the same phrasing that's used there. And although earlier it was used to uh, show a sign that, that he is the anointed one because of his prophecy, this is preparing him to do something. It's preparing him for war. But 
there are some subtle things in the text that the narrator shows us that why it might be a little different. Similar last week, as, as Will described, the fact that he was a head taller uh, and how that was a phrase that was used not to describe people of the covenant. It was not a good thing how Saul was described being different and no one was like him. The phrasing that's used in here is the spirit of God rushed upon him. Now, in the Bibles, there's two different ways that, that God is kind of described. It's there's the Lord. So sometimes you read in your Bible, it's the Lord and it's in all caps. That's a way of talking about Yahweh. That's the covenant kind of name of God. But there's another one that just says God, and that's just the kind of a more generic term for a deity that means it's, it was Elohim. And, and there are only one other place in, uh, outside of Samuel that this is kind of used, the spirit of God. And it's used of a guy named Balaam, and it, things do not go well for him. So kind of everywhere else up until this point, even in Judges, the phrase, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And it's used that phrase, Yahweh. This is different. It's the spirit of God. So it might seem very subtle, but the narrator, I think, is cueing us in on something that uh, something's not exactly right here. And this, he's set up for a trajectory that's not going to go well uh, in the end. That spirit of God, the only place it's mentioned is a guy named Balaam, who is a non-Israelite. It's found in Numbers uh, chapter 24, verse 2, who ultimately brought harm to Israel. And we will see uh, later as we read about Saul that, that that is what goes down earlier, but I, I just think that's a, that's kind of was an inter, intriguing point in looking at the the context. Verse seven. So the spirit rushes upon him. He's greatly angered. He's moved to do something about it. And verse seven, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, "Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen." Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Again, I, I couldn't help but think, is there no other way to motivate people to do something? Right? <laughs> Cutting up oxen into pieces, and then, you know, the threat, it's a threat, and, and we know threats, people often try to motivate people using threats. Doesn't seem to be the best kind of leadership tactic here, but we see that it works. The, the fear of the Lord, the dread of the Lord falls upon them, and they come out together as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And he said to the messengers who had come, this shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow, we will give ourselves up to you so that you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So the army has been mustered. Saul's got this great army. Word comes back to the people of Jabesh that say, hey guys, we are going to be able to save you by tomorrow afternoon. The time the sun is hot. You're going to have your deliverance. And the people of Jabesh use this kind of crafty ploy against Nahash. They, they use a word that literally means uh, tomorrow we will march out to you. And it's kind of ambiguous. Like, are they going to fight? Are they going to give up? It seems more like they're saying in kind of an ambiguous way, we're going to give ourselves up to you, like in surrender. And it seems to, to have kind of like a lulling, sleeping effect on the Ammonites. It seems like, as you can imagine, all right, no one's going to save them. They're going to come out to us tomorrow. Uh, let's party it up, have some good rest. Tomorrow we're going to gouge out some eyes, right? It says, the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch 
which would have been about between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So early morning, they just start slaughtering the Ammonites. Maybe they caught them off guard. They were asleep. They thought that they were going to have the victory the next day. Uh, It's a sneak attack, and they're done by the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two, one of them were left together. That's a phrase meaning the army's dismantled. They're done. The men of Jabesh have had their victory. Saul has proven this is the guy who's going to march before us and rule over us. He's going to fight our battles. Yay, we won. So that leads us to verse 12. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. All right, this is back to verse uh, chapter 10, verse 27. Remember those worthless fellows who said, How can this man save us? So, The people want revenge upon those guys. Hey, those guys who doubted Saul, let's just end them. Let's silence those chumps. Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now we are potentially seeing one of the highest moments of Saul's life. One of his high points. He gets something right here. So the scene before, like he hides in baggage. <laughs> uh, there's some weird things about the Spirit of God coming upon him. This is actually something he gets right. He knows it was the Lord who has worked salvation in Israel. And Samuel says to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So again, Paul's been publicly proclaimed as king. This seems more like a religious coronation. Uh, and these, these peace offerings are, are expressions, are signs of thanksgiving. So the people are giving thanks. God, uh, we have this king now. He saved us. Thank you. Uh, and the story ends with Saul and all the men rejoicing greatly. That kind of is, I think, the last kind of stage of this little story that we've seen from 1 Samuel chapter 8 all the way up to this point. Okay. Samuel, Saul's been chosen by God, he's been anointed by Samuel, he's been taken by Lot and publicly proclaimed, and now he's kind of been inaugurated. Uh, from this point forward, it's like Saul's king. Make sense? And, that, and that's where the story ends. Kind of positive, it's nice. Uh, Saul, seemingly one of his higher moments, you know, maybe leaves the people feeling hopeful. Wish I could say that would be the case as we look forward. It, it's not. Uh, just a, two chapters later, we'll see bad things happen, and, and Saul kind of shows who he is, really. Uh, but let's, let's seek now to answer those three questions that are found, found in our handout that we'll see up on the screen. Try to draw some understanding out. What is this passage trying to teach us about God? What can we learn about how he relates to his people? What, how does this story particularly connect to the larger story of the Bible? And then what is this story calling us to do or not to do? You guys still with me? All right, question number one. What does the story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? And I think it's very, for me, it's simple and it's easy. It's very clear in this passage. Simply put, God works salvation. His people respond with rejoicing. God works salvation for his people. His people respond with rejoicing. Now, it might seemingly seem obvious, but I wanted to point out a couple things uh, of how we see the people respond in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Notice, notice verse 9. 
And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. That seems like a fairly obvious response, doesn't it? Seems fitting. The people had two options, be totally destroyed, lose their right eye. Now they have a new option, neither, and be saved. I'm happy, right? That seems like a fitting response, doesn't it? Okay, let's look at verse 15. Notice kind of the emotional language and the wording that's used in response. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made king before the Lord in Israel, and they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So they have Saul as king, they've been saved, they're giving thanks, and they're rejoicing greatly. Again, might seemingly seem obvious. They kind of got what they want. They have a king who saved them. They're happy. But that's significant. That's something that we'll pick up later as we look at question three. But see, the Lord works salvation in Israel. The people respond with rejoicing. Uh, One commentary uh, said it like this. God works salvation in Israel means that Israel's salvation, her rescue, her security, does not come from a human king, as Saul rightly ascribes that the Lord is the one who works salvation in Israel. This story shows it does not come based on a human king or based on the performance of the king. It rests in the sovereign grace of God, God's faithful covenant love and commitment to his people. So we see even in the midst of the people rejected God as king, God's kind of given them what they want, God still moves to rescue his people. So God works salvation. It's not Again, it's not because of Saul or his greatness or his might. It's because God has worked. God is getting the tribute for the the praise and the victory and the honor. He's the one who deserves the glory. And then God's people are responding with gladness and rejoicing. Okay? That's pretty straightforward, right? Let's look at question two. How does the story connect to the larger story or meta-narrative of the Bible? Now, if you were with us as we studied uh, last fall, right, Well, we went through the book of Judges, uh, there's some... Peculiar similarities between this story and a story that's found at the end of Judges. In the book of Judges, in chapters 20 and 21, there's a story of a, a Levite and its concubine. And it's not for uh, the faint of heart. It's uh, not necessarily very G-rated. Uh, it describes a man who, his concubine is unfaithful, runs away. He goes after her, uh, finds her, brings her back. And on his way home, they stop in this town called... Uh, Gibeah, and the men of Gibeah come out as this man is uh, staying the night. He's at a host. He's eating. He's kind of enjoying rest. And the men of Gibeah come out and say, uh, "Hey, bring out your visitor that we may know him," which is Hebrew phrasing of saying, uh, "Abuse him sexually. Rape, we want to rape him." Uh, the man says, "You can't do this to th- to my guest." The Levite does not go out there, but he says, uh, here's my concubine, and she's raped and abused all night and, and dies. So again, sorry, it's graphic. This is in the Bible. Uh, this angers the Levite, right? And kind of the muster the troops to do something. Hey, these men of Gibeah cannot act like this. He cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, I don't know if Certainly, maybe they knew the history, but like, what is it with Israelites and cutting things up into 12 pieces? I don't know, but it seems to be kind of like, this is not right. We need to move to action. And, and Saul's cutting up of the oxen in 12 pieces and, and mustering the Israelites to fight, 
uh, should, is connected and correlated to that story that we found in Judges. But, but there's more that we see in the book of Judges as well. Uh, the men, so that all of Israel is, is mustered to fight against Gibeah, which is from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and Benjamin fights. They don't give up those worthless people who, who attacked the concubine and did those shameless acts to her. Uh, they fight. But the, the men of Gibeah, Benjamin, is almost completely annihilated. I think there's only uh, 600 soldiers who are left. And after the battle's done and the massacre's finished, the, the people of Israel, the elders come back and they say, uh, they almost kind of have like a little bit of regret and they are grieved that essentially they've wiped out one of their 12 tribes. <laughs> and it's kind of ironic and stupid. They say, God, why has this happened? You know, and it's, well, they're the ones who kind of massacred the whole tribe. They kill everyone. So their strategy is to, uh, let's provide some wives from them. But there's a catch because they agreed amongst themselves that we will not give any of our daughters to be their wives. So they say, well, uh, maybe there was some people here who didn't come out to fight with us. And the people happened to be from, you can imagine, Jabesh Gilead. So the, for people from Jabesh Gilead, they go annihilate Jabesh Gilead. The only people that they leave are the, the young female virgins so that they can have wives for these people from Benjamin. So weirdly enough, and I, in a strange twist, now Jabesh Gilead is, is asking for help. From, and Saul from Gibeah, Saul who might have very well been a descendant from uh, one of those soldiers who were the 600 left and a young virgin from Jabesh Gilead, this might have been his ancestral roots, is now fighting and saving Jabesh Gilead. Just kind of a, I don't know if that stands out to you guys if I'm explaining it very well, but there are a lot of correlations and connections in this story. Uh, it's related more in at the very end of, uh, excuse me, very beginning, uh, the town of Bezek is the place where God first grants military victory to the people of Israel. And this is the place where Saul musters the army of Israel. That's another connection of how it connects to the story of the Bible. And then looking back even further into the history of the Israelites, uh, Gilgal, where Samuel uh, calls the people to renew the kingdom, where Saul is made king. Gilgal is the same city where Joshua renewed the covenant as recorded in Joshua chapter 5. So there's a lot of significance in the story. And I think all that, all that uh, to say, this seems to be, 1 Samuel 8, now concluding in chapter 11, seems to be a key transitional point in the, the redemptive history of the Bible. So with the c- connection to judges, as we've seen the people cry out, uh, Saul kind of acts as a, a savior, a judge to, to save the people from their sins, from their oppressions, with this connection into the covenant in Joshua chapter 5, all this seems to show that this is the transitional period in the Bible where now the people have moved from Samuel to Joshua to Judges and now marks the beginning of a new period where they have human kings. And, and that, this story, in, in my opinion, in studying in the connections, all that seems to signify and show this reality. They have a human king now. There is a new time in the Israelites' history in regards to who leads them. And even in the midst of this significant story, this, this story showing the affirmation, the confirmation of, of Saul being king, one thing that we cannot miss, that the narrator doesn't miss, that Saul himself doesn't miss, is it, I think it would be very easy for the people to say, yeah, this is what we wanted all along. 
We have a king now, like all the other nations. Saul, you're the best. But in this, in this key transitional time, the Lord is described as working salvation in Israel. Saul, of all people, is the one who says that. That's significant and important for us to realize and important for the Israelites and the Hebrews as they were reading the stories later. It's the Lord who works salvation in Israel. The story points forward ultimately to a time when God would bring a new anointed one who would rescue his people from oppression. God's people who have the ultimate Nahash, the oppressor, the enemy, the snake, who would work salvation on behalf of his people. But let's look at, at question three. In light of all these realities, that the Lord works salvation, that his people respond with praise and how it connects to judges and, and serves as a transitional point in the history of the Israelites, let's see, what might this story call us to do or what warning does this have for us? That's that third question. What admonition or exhortation does this story offer? Right now, as we've seen, the reality is that God works salvation. The people respond in praise, in gladness, in rejoicing. The story invites us to do the same. The story invites us to praise God, to see that he is the one who works salvation and we should rejoice and be glad in him. And what I was thinking about this week is if all the people of Israel celebrated the fact that they had Saul as their king, which we know he, he has already had flaws, flaws that have been hinted at that we will see more clearly uh, in the coming chapters. If the Israelites are so happy and rejoice greatly in having Saul as king, if the people of Jabesh Gilead were glad on hearing the news uh, that they would be delivered from destruction and from losing their right eye, if this is how they respond with thanksgiving. The word even at the end of, of the chapter is, is rejoice greatly. It's the Hebrew word miod, which means to, like to an extreme degree, greatly, very much, pertaining to a very high point. They were glad, merry, happy, joyful at this news. How then should a Christian respond? Right? We can see it's fitting, it's clear, it's a logical response that hearing news that you're not going to have to lose your right eye, and you're not going to be totally destroyed, should make you happy. How should we respond if we really believe that God has saved us from the worst oppression, the worst enemy, the worst Nahash? That we not only are freed from losing our eye, but losing life losing all joy and goodness, being enslaved, being servants of Satan forever, being disgraced completely for eternity. If we really believe that's what we've been saved from, how then should we respond? Rejoicing greatly, right? Being glad. The story invites us to consider then is that what we really believe? You might say, well, yeah. I mean, the Israelites, they must have an easier time of rejoicing because they saw the enemy. It's very tangible. Like they saw it with their eyes, they're feeling. This is about to happen. For us, it takes faith, doesn't it? I haven't seen hell. I don't even know what life apart from God is like because of his common grace and how good and faithful God has been to me. I respond in gladness and, and joy and praise when 
maybe I'm going to lose my mind or, or my energy because I'm so hungry. And then I hear news that this is what's for dinner, and I respond with praise and thanksgiving. I can feel that and tangibly express that. But from hell, losing God, enslaved to sin, this, this my friends, I think takes intentional reminder and focus and prayer. We don't naturally do this. Hasn't a Christian been saved from so much more? And a Christian has received a king that's so much better than Saul? Saul was a king that the people wanted. Jesus was rejected. No one wanted Jesus. But Jesus was the king that we didn't deserve. That God in his grace has caused us and called us to him. Not because of anything that we've done, but simply by his sheer act of grace. And we've been saved from ultimate sin and shame and death and Satan. We were in the the dominion of darkness, enslaved to sin. Yet, when we receive, I, I think this is how it works, when a Christian receives the news that there is freedom from slavery, that God in his grace has made a way for us to be set free and to live and to be who we were made to be, to be human, that we respond with gladness and rejoicing and thanksgiving. And it seems to me that the way to grow and to mature as a Christian is believing that more deeply. Like we don't move on from that. Right? We think, yeah, gospel, heard it. They made me happy once. Now I'm kind of grumpy. Uh, I kind of live my life in this religious monotony. I was thinking about like this with my experience with chocolate growing up. So when I was little, my, my dad and my parents tell me this story. They gave me some really nice chocolates. And I'm a kid. I mean, what kid knows the difference between nice chocolate and cheap chocolate? I just scarfed it all down. I just inhaled it. Now I, I think I can tell. I have a refined palate, right? <laughs> I can taste a hint of coconut and an old-fashioned donut. Now I've, I've learned to experience and enjoy the richness of, a, of good chocolate. It's not because the chocolate's changed, right? But because I've matured. Some ways more than others, right? <laughs> but I think this is, what it, this is what it's like with the gospel. The gospel never changes. The message about Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection, that doesn't change. And if we live our lives thinking that, yes, it's gospel, and then, I don't know, I just need to search for these mystical religious experiences that will stir up my affections, or I just need to bend myself, and I think we're missing it. Yes, there's discipline involved, but the discipline is getting our hearts to experience and remember the gospel. Like we don't move on from that. And, and we grow as we experience that more deeply. Does that make sense? We go deeper and deeper into this news of salvation, and disciplines are very involved in that because our hearts often are prone to wander, we, we hear the gospel week in and week out, and, and even you might be sitting in your chair, yep, here goes Daniel, talking about the gospel. Gosh, gospel, gospel, gospel. <laughs> what else do we talk about here? Let's get on to something deeper, right? I mean, yeah, Jesus loves me. He gave his life for me. Now my life is transformed. I mean, I learned about that when I was four years old. Give me something deeper. It's about learning these simple truths more deeply, not about learning more deep truths. We take, we take disciplines like gathering and singing 
and reading our word and fasting to ask God, make my heart right, change my heart, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And that's where as we sing and, and we take communion together, I want us to be thinking about the words that are found in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's the ESV. New Living Translation says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. I like that one. New King James Version. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. I don't often read this one, but I just like the wording of it. Contemporary English Version. Make me happy as you did when you saved me. Make me want to obey. Friends, there's a reality here that we are talking about in increasing our faith and asking God to do something in our heart that, yes, we, we haven't seen Jesus. Right? We, we maybe didn't sit there in A.D. 30, 33, and witness his crucifixion. But if we are a Christian, we are, we are someone who, in the eyes of our hearts, we have seen and experienced what that means to some degree. And we are continually seeking, God, don't, don't let me forget this. My heart is so quickly cold and calloused, so quick to wander and to look for other things. I, I think ultimately, like, the worst thing that could happen to me is maybe I'm single and, and I never find a spouse. So... God, I just, I, I functionally, I just want someone to save me from this hell of singleness. Or I'm just stuck in this, uh, uh, this oppressive career and I won't really be happy until I make my next step. That's when I'll be happy. And I'm looking for this functional savior, this functional king, this functional God to, to restore and, and make me happy. We're just gonna live in this state of, of not ever being content and happy because our eyes are not fixated and centered and saturated in the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. So friends, I, I hope and I pray that, that, that by his grace and through his word that our hearts are reminded, that our eyes are, are fixed and, and I'm inviting you to look upon Jesus. He has worked salvation and what is now our response? Are our lives increasing with joy and with gladness? Do we want to sing to him and praise him? And that should be an indication of, Father, change my heart. I don't really mean the words that I'm singing. Make me believe them. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for so quickly forgetting what you have done and for placing other things uh, ultimately at the center of my life. Forgive me for the ways I have forgotten what you have saved me from and what you have saved me to. Forgive me for the functional kings and the idols and the gods that I have turned to, longing for the satisfaction and happiness that only you can deliver. And Father, I ask that you would restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Would you do that in this church by your grace through the power of your spirit? May we be a praying people, a repenting people, asking you to change us from the inside out and make us a people who, who are as happy as we were when you saved us.
that we are growing in joy and thanksgiving and gladness, that our gladness and our joy is not dependent upon external uh, contemporary, contemporary, excuse me, uh, momentary struggles. Father, help us to be a people who are rooted and centered in you and what you've done for your glory and for our joy. Pray that you do this in your son's name. Amen.